0: If you read ahead this week, you realize the, um, the heaviness of the text. And uh, it would be really easy to just skip something like that and find a happier passage. But what we're going to do today is be obedient to God's Word. We're going to open it, and we're going to pick up where we left off as we work our way through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you would join me in 1 Samuel chapter 3, or chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1, it's on page 228 in the Pew Bibles, and we're going to read through the text, and what we're going to do today is we're going to show the structure what's going on here. You'll, see, you'll notice that there's two different scenes, there's the scene at a battlefield, there's two camps, the Israelites and the Philistines, and then the story shifts to a new scene, and it's in the city of Shiloh. And we have there, yet again, two separate vignettes. There's a scene at the tabernacle, and there's a scene in a home. And so there's structure to this text, and with that structure there comes a little bit of help in understanding what the point of this passage is. And so as we begin this morning, we're going to ask the question, what happens when theology is replaced by superstition? What happens when theology is replaced by superstition? Lord, we pray and ask that you would help us today, not only to hear your word, but to be humbled by your holiness and our lack thereof. And we pray that through the story that we see and the tension that we feel and the tragedy that we observe, the devastation that comes upon your people because of their sin, we pray that we would lean in and learn well the lessons that they have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please follow along as I read from God's Word, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the second half of verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, came to Shiloh the same day, Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Finhas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. I can't imagine a much more sobering passage in the Old Testament than the one we have before us today. And as I said, we're going to look at this and we see it neatly divided in two different scenes. There's the scene from the battlefield, from verse 1 to verse 11, and within that scene we have an, a conversation that's taking place in the camp of Israel and a conversation that's taking place in the camp of the Philistines. And so as we work through this this morning, we're going we're gonna to move through the passage quickly, and then we're going to conclude with three applications, Okay. So Israel's defeated. We see that. 4,000 men die in verses 1 and 2. Israel's elders, as the army comes back into the camp that evening, they, they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now what's interesting is that they correctly understood their defeat was the result of the Lord's work. And they ask why. But the context appears to paint it more as a rhetorical why rather than a real thoughtful, soul-searching why. Because in the same breath, they, they order that the ark would be brought to the battlefront in order to save them. So we see here elders who are more interested in gathering what they view as a good luck charm than they are in a sincere understanding of what God is doing. In a strange way, there's some similarities between the elders here and what we learned of Hannah in chapter 2. Both understood that God was sovereign over the world and that He alone had the power to rescue. In Hannah's case, she prayed that God would give her a son. She was barren. In the elders' case, they didn't pray, they didn't ask God for insight. They didn't wait, they ordered his ark to be brought. That should clue us in on the way in which they understood the ark. True, it was the seat which God's glory came upon, the cherubim, that gold-leafed and covered hood and, and, and a lid of the ark, had these two angels on it. It was the place where God's presence was to dwell in the midst of his people. But unlike Hannah, who prayed to God and waited on him to rescue There's no such record about the Israelites' elders. They don't ask God to advise them, and they certainly don't wait to hear from him. They immediately call for the ark. And so here's an interesting thing for us to consider. They correctly understood God's sovereignty over all things, they correctly understood that God had given the Philistines the victory, God had defeated his own people. But instead of checking their own hearts and considering their wayward deeds, they immediately go into problem solving mode, a superstitious course of action. It is the ark's presence that will deliver us. Can we really coerce God into acting for us? That's a question we're going to come back to in our application in a few minutes. But right now let's continue. This shows us the scene in verses one through five from the Philist or the, the camp of the Israelites. Now we're given a look into the Philistine camp in verses six through nine. The ark comes. This huge national symbol. The nation is that it's gathered there for the battle. They are so excited. The earth is shaking by the sounds of their voice. They are celebrating. There is no doubt in their mind that God will change the course of these events. They will not be defeated. They will be victorious, for the ark is in their midst. They trust in it to save them. The Philistines are startled by the roar, and they ask, like the elders of Israel, what's the reason for this roar? The elders asked, what's the reason for our defeat? The Philistines ask, what's the reason for this sound coming from the camp of the Israelites? We just beat them. Why are they happy about this? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, verse six says they were terrified. They were afraid. And notice this twofold woe to us. Why would the Israelites be concerned about the ark coming into the battle? Well, verses seven and eight tell us. Like the Israelites, as they demonstrate their superstition, the Philistines were also superstitious. Unlike The Philistines, or unlike the Israelites, the Philistines actually attribute their fear to knowledge of what God had done to the Egyptians. Did you notice that in verse 8? This has never happened before. The God that just entered into their camp is the same God who defeated the Egyptians. We are dead men. There's no way we can defeat this God. Now, we can defeat the Israelites, but when that ark is there, we have no options. We are dead men. Woe to us. And what do dead men do? What do most men do when facing certain death and war? They rally one another. They speak to one another. Are we men? Are we willing to lose, and as we were masters over them, to let the tables be turned against us? No, let us be men. Let us be men, let us take courage, and let us fight, verse 9. And the result is told to us in very rapid fire order in verses 10 and 11. The Philistines fought and slaughtered Israel. 30,000 more soldiers fall in battle. The ark was captured and Eli's two sons died. God judged these wicked men as he predicted he would back in chapter 2 and verse 34. Both sons would die on the same day, and so it happened. Now, the passage moves us to the second scene, and that's the scene in the city of Shiloh, which was some 22 miles away from where this battle took place. A man who announces that he fled the battle comes into the city and he has bad news. Verses 12 and 13 says, as word spread in the city an uproar created. The noise was so loud that Eli hears it and he demands an explanation in verses 14 through 17. And what's interesting is the Hebrew is so, uh, it's fascinating to me in this text. Because There's noise in verse 6. The noise in the Israelite camp is a battle cry. And in verse 14, the noise or the sound that is heard is not a battle cry, but it is the shrieking cries of distress. Further, The Philistines and Eli ask virtually the same question. What's the purpose? What's the story behind this noise? The writer doesn't want us to miss the significance of what has taken place. At the battlefront, we hear a war cry. But in Shiloh, there is only the cry of wailing. And tragically, what do we have between these two sounds? Silence. Because the hills are littered with the bodies of 30,000 men. I can't overstate the seriousness of sin's consequences. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And what we're seeing here is that very thing. 34,000 men gone. And between these two places, God asks the man who escaped, or Eli asks the man who escaped to tell him what happened. Twice, the narrator interrupts the dialogue between this Benjaminite and Eli to include important information. Eli's question comes in verse 14. We're told that he's 98, he's blind. We're told in verse 18 that he was heavy, obese and that he had judged Israel for 40 years. We're right to notice also, as the story unfolds and the dialogue continues, that what do we see in verse uh, 18? That as soon as this messenger mentioned that the ark was taken, Eli, the shock, sends him over the back of his chair, and he falls and breaks his neck and dies. It wasn't the loss of his two sons that shook him to his core. It was the capture of the ark. This time the Hebrew makes a tragic connection between Eli who fell and the 30,000 foot soldiers who fell. Death is all over this scene. And this is just the scene at the tabernacle. Now we move to a second scene in the city of Shiloh, and it's in a home in verses 19 through 22. Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas's wife, heard the news. As a pregnant woman, It panic hit her. The seriousness of it caused her to have contractions, and she goes into labor, verse 19 says. And the women who were there helping her deliver this boy are trying to comfort her that you have given birth to a son. But even those efforts to comfort this woman went on deaf ears. She paid no attention to what they said in verse 20. And before she dies from childbirth, she names her son a name that literally means no glory. The glory has gone into exile from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now remember, after the Exodus, when God had led Israel into the wilderness, he told them how to construct the tabernacle, how to build the ark. It's all the specifications are there written for us in the law. And after it was set up, as we come to the end of Exodus, then God comes down into the ark. He covers it, his glory fills it. It represents his dwelling place what will later become known as the Shekinah glory. But the ark is gone. And so the question that one wonders is, has God abandoned his people? Now, I think the writer of 1 Samuel had all these things constructed in a way to bring us to a point. So we've worked through the text. Now let's look at three applications. First, God's judgment develops Slowly. But it rolls down quickly. So repent before it's too late. Let me say that again God's judgment builds slowly, but rolls down quickly. So repent before it's too late. You see, we're in chapter four, but chapter four comes right after chapter three. And chapter 3 comes right after chapter 2. I know this is like mind-blowing, isn't it? But the events of chapters 2 and 3 transpired over many years, perhaps even decades. You can go and look at the little clues. Eli's age, he's he's getting a little blind in chapter 2, and in chapter 4, he's blind. I mean, sitting by the side of the road to watch what's going to happen is kind of a little tongue-in-cheek. He cannot see. We're also told that Samuel grew, even though he doesn't appear in this text. We also know that a message came to Eli about his sinful sons and his failure to discipline them in chapter 2, and then it was later repeated in chapter 3, coming through uh, from God to Eli through Samuel. So it's possible that the events of chapter 2 and 3 took place over decades But the majority of chapter 4 occurred in one day. God slowly orders events and then quickly unfolds them. Israel planned to use the ark to achieve their victory. But God used the ark to achieve his purpose in putting Hophni and Phinehas to death. He was determined to remove false shepherds from before his people. God isn't just removing unfaithful priests, though. He also eliminates Shiloh as a place of worship. The ark has been taken away, and God is going to cleanse the land and the priesthood in order to prepare things for the man he had called to be his prophet and his priest, Samuel. Four times we're told in chapter 4, verse 17, verse 19, 21, and 22, that the Philistines captured the ark. And as we fast forward into other portions of the Old Testament, it appears that capturing the ark and defeating 34,000 Israelites wasn't the only thing that happened, but that the Philistines made those 22-mile trek and they destroyed the city of Shiloh. Because when you come to the book of Ezekiel, And Jeremiah, you realize, Jeremiah connects the tail end of the monarchy to the late period of the judges when he says this, God will make this house, the temple, like Shiloh. And I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. In the time of Samuel, the last judge of Israel, the ark was captured and the glory departed from Israel. In the time of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, we are told the glory left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 9 and 10 and 11, and then the temple was destroyed. There is something significant when God's people make a mockery of him that he will endure for a while in his patience, but he will bring justice and it will roll down upon us. Israel's greatest enemy is not the Philistines. It's their own sinful heart. And that's not just true of them, but of all people. It was true of their elders. It was true of the priest. It was true even of their judge, Eli. And God brought such judgment upon them for their sin of presumption. They had taken his ark and turned it into an object of worship. They worshipped the creation rather than the creator. Doesn't that have echoes of what Paul draws from in Romans 1? Isn't that our tendency as well? To trust in something other than the Lord? God did exactly what he said. He judged the family of Eli just as he said he would. Over and over we see that God is patient in building his case, but then justice rolls down quickly. Dale Davis in his commentary in 1 Samuel says, God must depart from us in order that we might Seek him rightly. I wonder if you feel a little bit like God has left you. Perhaps God has stepped back from you in order that you will approach him in the right way. We should take some time to think about how great a loss it is when God's presence is not even among his own people. We must also understand how great the need is for all who don't have the Lord. You see, when we get to next week, verses, or chapters 5 and 6, we'll see what the Philistines do with this ark, how they treat it with the same kind of superstition that the Israelites have. And we will discover that God will not be beholden to people, whether they are Philistines or Israelites. We cannot coerce God to act according to our plans. He is sovereign. So let me just say something. If you're here this morning and you're not churched, if you're not a believer, you don't normally come, we want to thank you for being here. And you're hearing a word that is really hard, but I want to help you make some sense of it because we're stepping in on the very early parts of the book of 1 Samuel, but there were books before First Samuel. And we need to understand that the Bible is a collection of books that are all connected. Think of J.K. Rowling's uh, the Harry Potter series, how each book built upon another, or Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, that there's this thread that runs through it all. The Bible is the same way, 66 books, all inspired by God, and they all have a point to them that overlaps and dovetails with the other books. They're not all standalone in the sense that you go from one thing to something totally foreign and they're just a random collection. There's a story being told, there's an arc. And what we learn in the first five books of the Old Testament is that God is a God of creation. He is a good creator, making all things perfect, that He is patient, that He is mighty to save, that He is glorious, and there is none like Him. He chooses to be patient with people who are skilled at sinning. And that's what we see also in the first five books. All people have this skill. And yet God chose one man to make a nation from. He grew from one man and his wife and their one son into a people that were beyond numbering. And later God made a covenant with that nation, calling them Israel, in which he promised to protect them, provide for them. If they would obey his laws, if they would follow him, he would bless them. But if they would waver and stray from him, he would bring correction. And by the time we get to 1 Samuel, Israel has been in that period in process of correction for quite a few generations now. For some several hundred years, they have been residing in the promised land. And in spite of receiving from God's hand... Homes they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant. They had repeatedly rejected God. They had walked away from their covenant responsibilities. And yet what we see is that God is faithful to keep his covenant. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14, describes the blessings for obedience. And then in that same chapter, verses 15 through 68, it describes the covenant curses for disobedience. Hear these. This ties in so perfectly to our passage. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Deuteronomy 28 25 and 6. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. What do we see in our text? These men of Israel gathered at Aphek. They came one way to battle. And then what do we see? We see that these soldiers fled. They were defeated and they fled every man to his house in verse 10. They didn't all come from the same place. We're seeing a fulfillment here. God will cause them to flee seven ways before their enemies and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and there shall be no one to frighten them away. 34,000 bodies. And yet, if you're here visiting with us this morning and you hear this heavy word, here is what the New Testament also dovetails with. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, it applies to us. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Just as God's wrath for Eli and his sons and Israel had built up to the point where there was going to be no more atonement for them. Judgment would have to fall. They had been given too many chances. They had received truth and rejected it. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but what's left? A fearful expectation of judgment. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What are we to do with this? If we're sinners just like the Israelites were, if God spared not his own people because of their sin, what is he going to do to us? He is going to judge us based on our sinful deeds. And so we need to hear these words that come not from Jesus in the Gospels, but from the prophet Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If there is something that you hear today, this holy God that we have just sung about, this holy God who we've seen demonstrate his judgment upon his people, is willing and ready to give forgiveness to all who repent. He invites us to seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. Isaiah goes on to say, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Ezekiel goes on to say God promises to give those who repent a new heart and a new spirit I will put it within them I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God God's judgment builds slowly And then it rolls down quickly. So let us consider whether or not we need to repent of our sins, hope in God, and seek his covenant faithfulness. He promises to redeem sinners, to change hearts and to enable them to love and obey him. Isaiah spells that all out. Ezekiel spells that all out. Jeremiah spells that all out. How does God do that? That mystery is unveiled and revealed through Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who takes on our sin as the divine Son of God, bearing the wrath that was meant for us in order to redeem us from a judgment that we do deserve. And he promises that all who come to him, he will in no way cast out. You can truly have the forgiveness of all your sins through Jesus. He gave his life for you. That brings us to our second application. Not only does judgment build slowly and roll down quickly, which requires us to repent, but we should rejoice that God works according to his purposes and not ours. Now, there is not a word of happiness in this whole chapter. I mean, Israel's joy, their exaltation over the ark arriving in the camp, their battle cry was short-lived. That could be the closest thing to real happiness in this chapter, but it doesn't last long, right? The very next morning, those men who had been shouting were dead. But I want us to see, Israel wanted to coerce God into working on their behalf. And you have to wonder if their inability to coerce God, to control him, is what would ultimately lead to their demanding of a king just a few chapters later in chapters 7 and 8. They want leadership, just not God's. Or at least not according to God's ways. And we ought to be thankful that God does not work according to our purposes, but his own. We see this. God, Davis says again in his commentary, it's just such a profound word, God will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. You see, what we discover in the midst of all the death is that God hates falsehood and lies in those who represent him. Now, not only did Israel suffer shame in defeat, On the battlefield, but in eyes of both the Philistines and the Israelites, God's reputation took a hit. They believed because the charm was there, the ark, they owned God. They could just wield him around as the one ring that rules all, other rings, that they could use him for their purposes and that this is just the way it worked. Their theology of the one true God had turned into superstition because their sin had pulled them away from him so much. That they began to represent the pagan nations around them. And I wonder if perhaps we're saying, God, I keep praying for these things. I keep asking you to do these things. And you keep not showing up. I'm doing my good thing. I'm trying to read my Bible. I show up at church on Sundays. I'm giving to the church. I'm crossing the T's and dotting my eyes. Where's my reward? You see, Christian, God's okay with his name taking a hit in order to expose whether you're really his or not, whether you're really representing him rightly or not. And we can be just like Israel in that. And isn't that the point? We want to determine when, where, and how God will help us while also retaining the right to ignore him in order to pursue our own way. Another word from Davis. God will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. You know, as a young boy growing up in a Christian home and in a church, I, um, I prayed some stupid prayers as a kid. In my engineering mind, which is very small, there was a tree in our gravel parking lot at the church that I didn't think should be there. It was a massive elm. And I remember hearing one of those stories in Sunday school about if you have the faith, the grain of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to be removed and throw it into the sea. And so I would pray all the time, God, move that tree over there in the yard. Move it. Do it. And that began a series of events as I grew older and older where I became more and more disenfranchised with God, disappointed with him. Ultimately, God used all of that to awaken in me an understanding of who he really is. I cannot control God. I don't dictate to him. I have to submit to him. And I didn't see him then as a, as a college student. I, my view of God changed from someone who was either opposing me or just didn't care to one who actually loved me and wanted to transform my heart and to forgive me of my sin and to make me a new creation and to use me for his honor and glory. It changed everything because all of those disappointments of the false God that I had created were smashed down by an encounter with the true and living God that's what he's offering to us today. The more we try to coerce God into doing what we want, the more you will find yourself frustrated. Because God's goal is to teach us who he is, not to become who we want him to be. And on a related note, some of us may think uh, this has been really surprising to me, uh, not in a good way, but being in different stores throughout town here, I feel like uh, this is like Sedona, Arizona in Rapid City. There's all kinds of astrology, and there's Ouija boards and horoscopes and even books. Uh, Grace and I were in books a million not too long ago, and there's these little kids' tables spread out, and it was like how to build your own horoscope for kids. And let, let me just say, it's a related note. Christians don't need astrology, We don't need horoscopes, Ouija boards, tarot cards, or anything like that. They have no place in the life of the Christian. What we need is to ask God to speak to us through his word and then obey it. Remember what we learned in our last sermon from 1 Samuel, chapter 3. The rarity of God's word in Israel in those days. Israel had the five books of the law that revealed who God was and who he wanted Israel to be. So why was God's word rare? It was because they had rejected him. They had walked away from his word and God was not going to give them more revelation through prophets or visions. But we Christians today, we have the completed word of Scripture. Not just five books. We have 66 books. We have Christ And the apostles, we have the teaching of the completed word of God. So we need to listen to him, not anything else. This leads us to our final application, and this is really brief. We need to rejoice that God works according to his purposes and not ours. And finally, we need to rejoice that God is always working, even during our tragedies. Eli's daughter-in-law dies with these words on her lips. The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. She believed God's presence left with the ark. And we often think the same way. When the last time something really bad happened to you, did you ask, where's God in this? How could a good God allow this to happen to someone like me? It's interesting, Hannah is struggling with barrenness. Israel is struggling with unholiness. And both tensions on on the micro level and on the macro level, the tension to question and wonder, is God in fact working, is held by both of those. So we must never allow our personal experiences to overshadow the teaching of Scripture, regardless of the tragedy that you may be encountering or that you will encounter. Know this, Christian. God works all things together for His glory and the good of His people. God is always working. He is not taken by surprise. Big, catastrophic events, they don't shock Him and catch Him unguarded, they don't demonstrate his ineptness or inattentiveness those of us who have lived a little bit, who have experienced some personal tragedies can learn from God's word that he's at work even when we can't see it and this is a text that shows that it was Israel's darkest day the ark of God had never been taken I mean, in fact, they'd brought it into battle before, around the walls of Jericho. Remember when Joshua fit the battle? It was it was the Ark that led Israel across the Jordan River at a time of flooding, and the waters parted. I mean, they had a history, but they didn't have a connection with God, which made such a disconnect. Right? They lost the sight that the glory of the Lord had left the ark long before they brought it onto the battlefield. They, they had lost community and communion with God because of their sin. And so it would be natural for them to question, well, how is God working? He's not working. He, he's bailed out on us. And yet what we see as the readers of 1 Samuel today, we can see that God is indeed working. He's washing clean the temple or the tabernacle. He's removing wicked priests. He's going to move the ark into a new place. It will never again settle in Shiloh. It will never again be a center of worship. God has plans and he is working always, even in our tragedies. I've already quoted from Ezekiel, so I'll continue. When God used the Babylonians to take Judah into exile, those exiles in the the nation of Babylon believed that God was not strong enough to protect them. And God knew that. And so he gave a message to his prophet Ezekiel, who was also in exile. And he said this, Your exile is not a sign of my powerlessness. I'm in total control. I will not tolerate my people making a mockery of my name by their immorality, their murder, their idolatry, and their wickedness, so I'm going to send them into exile, and I will judge my people by using other nations as my instrument, and I will use those very nations to preserve my people until I bring them back. You can read all about that in Ezekiel chapter 6, chapter 20 and chapter 36, God demonstrates even in the darkest of days that he is sovereign and he is working. We see this in the scripture. So even though we don't see it in our day, when we're dealing with cancer or when we see a loved one perish or whatever the tragedies that could be taking place, we go back to the scriptures and we can be confident that God is always working. And when we believe that he is not working according to our ways, that's really the issue. We would do well to remember these words from Isaiah 55. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We serve an awesome God. He has not promised us ease in this life but he has promised to be with us and he is with us. His spirit resides within us. We see God personified when we as a church gather together and we sing together, we pray together as we converse with one another, as we care for one another. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We can be absolutely confident that he is in our midst and working today. He is not Left us. The glory has not departed. And so when we enter into struggles and hardships, we need to be reminded of these sad stories in the scriptures because not only are they true, but they demonstrate to us something that God may be working in our lives so that we yearn for Him more. We return to Him in obedience where we've been rebellious. We see Him in a new way as He faithfully sustains us. God is interested in his glory and our good. Lord, we pray that